This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So why did you all come here tonight? Right? Why does an event that, almost, that happened almost 400 years ago still matter today to the point of attracting us all here? Well, one of the reasons is because all of you probably already have an idea, even if just a superficial one, about who Galileo was, what he did, and maybe even about how he died. Given your slight familiarity with the topic, which most likely also relates to your scientific, religious, and other personal interests, you want to know more about Galileo. The problem, however, is that I bet that some of these ideas that you have about Galileo are very different between themselves. Truth is, many people think and speak as if they know the basics of the Galileo affair even if they have never studied the topic themselves, much less read a book or um, you know, attended a talk like this. But how different can your ideas about Galileo be? Well, if I was giving this talk a couple decades ago, some people would probably think that the church burned Galileo at the stake. Today, due to important work of historians of science, this idea is not as popular anymore, especially in university circles. Galileo was indeed not burned at the stake, but died rather peacefully in his villa in the outskirts of Florence. The narrative that underlies such a claim, however, is still alive in different forms. This narrative, which perhaps some of you share, is that of a dramatic, perhaps even violent conflict between Galileo and the Catholic Church. The story is popular because it serves different purposes whenever it is used. For instance, um, it's okay. For instance, physicist Mario Livio from Johns Hopkins University, where I did my PhD, recently published a book where he used the Galileo Affair to speak about modern science deniers. Tellingly, he described Galileo's adversaries as science deniers, among which figured, of course, the Pope and the Church. Others, however, used the Galileo Affair to argue that there is an incompatibility between science and religion, and more specifically between science and the Catholic Church. Another example, when the Vatican Observatory launched their new website a few years ago, they received what the physicist and Galileo historian Christopher Granny described as, quote, Galileo hates male. People wrote on social media about Catholics burning people for doing science. It was the burned at the stake myth all over again. In fact, this idea of church versus science is still so pervasive today that it became a marketing tool which journalists, politicians, and even some historians fall into, even without having any deeper intention of attacking the Catholic Church or you know, creating the, you know, fostering the myth of science and religion. It's just a trope that people think will sell uh, books, I think. A recent example, let me show you, is a New York Times piece that just came out about a discovery of a new Galileo forgery. It was, this is August 2022. The article's content is mostly about Galileo's astronomical observations and has nothing to do with Galileo and the church. Yet, it has one paragraph where it states that Galileo's new observations with the telescope were, quote, condemned by the Catholic Church. In short, the Galileo affair is regularly seen as a symbol of a supposed conflict between science and religion, and more specifically, between science and the Catholic Church. Thus, this leads us to ask what exactly happened between Galileo and the church. Does the Galileo affair really support the thesis that science and religion are in conflict? 
Did the Catholic Church persecute scientists and condemn scientific observations? Or is it the case that Galileo's relationship to the Church was much more nuanced, pacific, and at times fruitful? Tonight, I want to take a closer look at the Galileo affair to help you decide for yourselves whether Galileo was a heretic or not, whether Galileo was seen as an enemy by the Church or not. And I say by yourselves, because I will limit myself to Galileo's own letter, you know, his letters and the Inquisition records, which are all still available to whoever wants to read them, even in English, because Galileo became such an important and famous character that the Inquisition proceedings are all translated into English. But in order to understand the Galileo affair, we also have to understand its context. Galileo's times were times in which princes, kings, and popes ruled nations that were often at war with one another in which religion mattered much more than it does today, and in which science and the understanding of nature was, of course, very different from the one that we have today in modern science. In short, Galileo lived in a context that was very different from ours. Yet it is precisely by historicizing Galileo, as historians like to say, that we can best understand how science and religion really interact with one another, how scientific theories change through time, and how history as a discipline should be done and read. So, to set the record straight, let me start with the end, the end of the Galileo affair. Most popular narratives have, have some truth to them, and the Galileo affair is not an exception. In 1633, the 69-year-old Galileo Galilei was in fact condemned by the Roman Inquisition, not as a heretic, but as being mentally suspected of heresy, as you can read in the Inquisition report. As a consequence, his book on heliocentrism, The Dialogue on the Two Chief World Systems, was taken out of circulation. Galileo also received some penances, such as staying under house arrest and reciting, quote, the seven penitential psalms once a week for three years. The reasons for these decisions are also clear in his reports, quote, for having held and defended a doctrine which is false and contrary to the divine and holy scripture that the sun is the center of the world and does not move from east to west, and the earth moves and is not the center of the world. Moreover, as we will see later on, the Pope, the very head of the church, had a personal interest in his condemnation. So while it becomes clear that Galileo was not burned at the stake, I mean, it's also, there is also no doubt that the Inquisition condemned Galileo for supporting the heliocentric system. The problem, however, is that this Inquisition record like all historical documents, has to be read in its own context. One thing, for instance, that has disturbed Galileo's historians until very recently is the fact that of the ten cardinals who were to sign this Inquisition condemnation, three of them did not sign it. I mean, if the church was really against science, if the cardinals did not like this theory, why didn't they sign this doc you know, these documents? But I would say that the most surprising thing about this condemnation is that the theory for which Galileo was condemned, the heliocentric theory, had already been published, was around for a long while, you know, without a problem. Nicholas Copernicus, the modern father of this theory, first published it in 1543, 90 years before this condemnation. Thus the interesting question for historians is not whether the church persecuted science. Instead, we want to know what happened between the publication of Copernicus's you know, book and theory and you know, between that and, and, and what happened, you know, by the way, this, this was decades before Galileo was born. So what happened between then and 1633? 
in which this condemnation um, was promulgated. How did things change? What happened? So, for this reason, let's go back to the times of Copernicus. And so this talk will basically go from Copernicus, you know, to Galileo, to this condemnation. And in the middle, I'll try to explain some of the science that was going on um, at the time to bring, you know, to give you context. Copernicus was indeed the first modern man to develop a theory in which the sun, not the earth, is at the center of the universe. However, rather than looking at Copernicus as a great scientist, as many modern monuments tend to portray him, we should look at him just like he and his friends saw him. From a Renaissance perspective, Nicolaus Copernicus was mostly a committed clergyman from Poland with profound intellectual interests and capacities, especially in astronomy. But how does a man who spends most of his days in church, like Copernicus did as a canon of the Fromborg Cathedral in Poland, discover the heliocentric theory of the universe? Good question. So, as everyone who attends university in the Renaissance, Copernicus had first to study mathematics as part of the basic liberal arts curriculum. Mathematics at the time included the discipline of astronomy, but astronomy then was very different from astronomy now. In its basic form, all astronomers followed a geocentric model in which the Earth was at the center of the universe. But this was actually a minor thing for astronomers, because a Renaissance astronomer was mostly interested in what historians have called saving the phenomenon. This means that they were interested only in making astronomical predictions of where exactly each planet, sun, and moon will be in a specific night of the year. These calculations for the position of celestial objects was very important, for example, to determine the calendar, especially the liturgical calendar. Then, as now, today is still like that, the date of Easter is determined astronomically. So, how do we determine the date of Easter? It is the first Sunday after the first full moon, after the spring equinox, which falls on March 21st. But when does this specific Sunday fall every year? I mean, we'd have to, you know, after March 21, wait for the first full moon. Okay, so it's next Sunday, right? But the problem is that we need to plan things ahead. The church needs to plan things ahead, you know, for a variety of reasons. You know, the most obvious is, for instance, to prepare for Lent, which happens 40 days, more or less, before Easter. But so how do we calculate? How do we know when this first full moon will be after the spring equinox? How do we know when the spring equinox will be? Um, so this was a major um, problem for the church um, at the time, especially because the calendar that was used in the times of Copernicus was already, you know, with, a, with lots of delays. So most people in the church and most and all astronomers knew that the, the calendar that people had at the time was not a good calendar. A new calendar was needed with better astronomical um, models. So as an engaged clergyman, Copernicus was fully aware of these problems. Long story short, in his free time, he started working on a new astronomical model with the sun at the center of the universe that tried to account to the same things of the old geocentric model, but in a simpler way. It turns out that Copernicus's model was quite successful and has attracted the interest of many astronomers and of important people in the church. These people, which included the Pope, were the ones who then encouraged him to write all of it in a book, the famous on the revolution of the revolutions of celestial orbs, published in 1543 and dedicated to Pope Paul III. In the book's preface, Copernicus tells us the story himself, quote, while I hesitated for a long time and even resisted in publishing his book, my friends drew me back. 
Foremost among them was the Cardinal of Capua, Nicholas Schoenberg, renowned in every field of learning. Next to him was a man who loves me dearly, Tiedemann Gies, Bishop of Chalno, a close student of sacred letters as well as of all good literature. For he repeatedly encouraged me and sometimes adding reproaches, requested me to publish his volume urgently. Copernicus' theory was published and in fact was one of the astronomical models in the 16th century reform of the calendar that led to the calendar that we still use today in almost all the world, well, you know, the, the Gregorian calendar. In the end, there was no religious persecution to Copernicus and his ideas. On the contrary, such ideas were developed and promoted by many people in the church, including the Pope. Now, did scholars completely change their understanding of the world after reading Copernicus? You know, did Copernicus convince people that the sun was really at the center of the universe? Not really. Although a few astronomers mastered Copernicus's book, it was, in fact, a very complicated text. You know, some people have even described it as the book nobody read. <laughs> they took it only as a good model to make astronomical predictions. Indeed, by 1600, 33 years before Galileo's condemnation, there were less than 10, Copernicus, 10 Copernicans in the entire world. And Galileo was not one of them. In 1600, Galileo did not follow the heliocentric theory. The reason for this is partly cultural, partly scientific. Truth is, there were many scientific observations that seemed to show that the Earth was at the center of the universe. The first is just basic common sense. Everything looks like as if it rotates around us every day and night. Today we explain the daily motion of the suns and stars, the sunrise and sunset, with the rotational motion of the Earth. But that is not obvious. In fact, the very words sunrise and sunset imply a geocentric model, as if the sun is moving. Moreover, besides this daily motion, the sun also seems to make an annual motion that creates different seasons and different starry skies in the summer and the winter. Today we explain this motion with the translational motion of the Earth around the Sun. But again, this is not what we see with our eyes. Today each one of us agrees with heliocentrism. You know, all of, all of us here believe in the heliocentric theory. Not just because of physics, not everyone here is crazy to do a, you know, to study physics in college. But we believe in this because we have been told so since we were born. Maybe even through science books for kids. The problem is that Galileo and his contemporaries, they did not have these books. You know, these, these books were not available for them. Nor did they have modern classical physics. In fact, there were deeper reasons against heliocentrism coming from Renaissance physics, or natural philosophy, as it was known at the time. In this period, physics and astronomy were entirely different disciplines practiced by different people. Whereas astronomers, as I mentioned, only accounted for the positions of the planets in the sky, natural philosophers were really interested in the causes of things. Most natural philosophers followed the teachings of Aristotle, a Greek philosopher who explained almost everything that we see within a powerfully sound philosophical system. One thing that Aristotle concluded was that motion of any kind occurs when something is out of its place of rest. Just think of a ball. If you throw a ball upwards, it will always come down, no matter what you do to it. And the same thing, you know, because the, the place of rest of the ball, obviously, you see, is you know, downwards at the center of the earth. The same thing happens, for instance, with fire. If you lit up a candle and you move the candle toward whatever in whatever position you want, the, the flame of the candle will always move upwards, right? But the liquid wax, however, will fall. So if you try this at home, be careful, not get burned. <laughs> but um, 
Aristotle already explained that. So, according to the Aristotelian standard model of physics, it made no sense to place the Earth away from the center of the universe. If you try to develop a model in which the Earth is elsewhere in the universe, Renaissance physics tells you that the Earth will naturally tend to the center of the world. Thus, the heliocentric model will not work from the very beginning, I mean, physically speaking. And almost everyone in early modern Europe thought this way, not only because they learned it in school, but because it matched what they saw, their common experience, and that of all their ancestors. Yet, there were, in fact, a few problems in Aristotelian physics, and natural philosophers have been commenting on them since the early Middle Ages. But these problems were very minor, so they didn't threaten the Aristotelian system. The problem, however, is that many minor things make one large problem, and, um, and minor things, in fact, do matter. And one of the persons in the 16th century to tackle some of these problems was Galileo Galilei. In the early 1600s, Galileo was professor of mathematics at the University of Padua. But due to his interest in the mathematical discipline of mechanics, he started to think more about the motion of heavy objects. In particular, he realized the mistake of Aristotle's claim that an object twice as heavier than another will fall twice as faster. Through his own measurements and experiments, Galileo concluded that regardless of their weight, objects fall at the same time. And of course, Aristotle didn't get this because of the friction of the air, but you know, as one of the Apollo missions to the moon, they actually tried with the hammer and the feather, and they saw it, you know, falling at the same time in the moon when, when, where there is no air, so there's no friction of the air. But Galileo also noticed other things. For instance, he claimed that certain objects float on water and others do not because of their density and not because of a tendency to go to their place of rest. Yet, just like with Copernicus, Galileo's studies of physics did not cause much agitation. He shared his results with his colleagues and friends. Some liked them, some did not. And especially the Aristotelian natural, natural philosophers, they didn't like them and they tried to respond. Um, but since Galileo was only a professor of mathematics and not a natural philosopher, his claims did not seem threatening to Aristotelian physics. You know, there was a major social difference between you know, mathematicians and natural philosophers or physicists. Now, you know, natural philosophers, for instance, received more money in, at the university than mathematicians. And so it was. For most of his life, Galileo was virtually unknown to the wider world. He was just a mathematician trying to mature his ideas and advance in his career. But in 1609, when Galileo was already 45 years old, things began to change. In that year, a new gadget that allowed to see at greater distances appeared for sale in Venice, the main city close to Padua. It was, you know, this gadget was probably advertised as something that allowed soldiers to see at a distance or sea sailors to look at distant lands. Galileo decided to, decided to acquire this instrument and improve it considerably by grinding lenses and all that. However, instead of pointing this object to the lens, Galileo pointed it to the sky and saw things that no one had ever seen before. What he saw changed his life and the history of science forever. But I you know, would just like to clarify again that it was not the observations per se that made this change. It was the, you know, the observations that Galileo did in combination with very specific historical circumstances that led to these explosive events that will, that will follow. And these circumstances were certainly scientific, you know, the, the scientific theories at the time, but they were also social, political, and later on, 
religious. So let's take a look at these groundbreaking observations that Galileo did. With a telescope, as this instrument came to be called, Galileo saw that there were many more stars in the sky than people thought there were. He noticed that some nebulas in the night sky, like the Milky Way, were clusters of stars. He identified mountains in the moons. And most importantly, he discovered that Jupiter has moons. No one before the 45-year-old Galileo had seen this ever. And Galileo knew that very well. He also rapidly understood that these discoveries would strongly support the Copernican system. Now, Galileo had not been a Copernican for most of his life, and like everyone else, he thought that the Earth was at the center of the universe. But since his last years in Padua, he had been flirting with Copernicanism, because if Copernicanism was true, it would be a much more efficacious way to confirm the flaws of the Aristotelian system. In this way, Galileo's own ideas about motion would be more easily acceptable if Copernicanism was true. <coughs> but why did Galileo become more convinced of Copernicanism because um, of these observations? What, why did, what did these observations do? So here's a quote from Galileo himself. He says, here we have a fine and elegant argument for quieting the doubts of those who are mightily disturbed to have the moon alone revolve about the earth and accompany it in an annual motion, uh, in an annual rotation about the sun. Some have believed that the structure of the universe should be rejected as impossible. But now, we have not just one planet rotating about another, while both run through a great orbit around the sun. Our own eyes show us four stars, which wander around Jupiter, as does the moon around the Earth, while all together trace out a grand revolution about the sun in the space of 12 years. So after making these observations, Galileo literally stopped everything else he was doing to make more observations and publish them. In fact, we still have many of, the, of his observation notes from these days. And you know, just a side note, it's precisely one of these notes that was just discovered to be a forgery. So you know, a very famous letter, it's in the University of Michigan Special Collections. Um, and forgeries you know, in history are, you know, of course, a fascinating topic because they involve lots of money, corruption, and very serious historical knowledge. But anyway, I mean, this is not a, a talk about forgeries, and um, one thing is certain, there are many other documents that confirm you know, what Galileo was doing, so it's not that this forgery could have to state um, what we know about Galileo. So Galileo published his observations as fast as he could in a book that came out in March 1610, entitled The Starry Messenger. The book was a bestseller, and everyone was amazed at Galileo's new discoveries. But there were problems with these discoveries, problems that are typical to the history of science and to modern science as well. For instance, almost no one could replicate Galileo's observations. Not only no one had a telescope as good as Galileo's, but even those who later acquired one had a hard time seeing anything through it. Interestingly, the first major replication of Galileo's observations occurred in Rome. Cardinal Bellarmine, one of the most important churchmen and intellectuals of Europe at the time, asked Jesuit astronomers in Rome about the reliability of Galileo's observations. And for those who do not know, a Jesuit was a member of a relatively young religious order called the Society of Jesus that was changing the face of Europe by its educational ministry, which included the teaching of advanced mathematics. In less than a few weeks, these Jesuit astronomers were able to build a telescope of their own as good as Galileo's, and reproduced all of Galileo's observations carefully including some new ones that Galileo had made, such as a knot shape of Saturn that we now know to be rings, the rings of Saturn, 
and the phases of Venus. As a result of his confirmation, rather than rejecting Galileo, the Jesuits invited him to attend a party in his honor at the Jesuit headquarters in Rome, which Cardinal Bellarmine, who was also a Jesuit, also attended. So Galileo goes to Rome to celebrate his um, scientific observations at the Jesuit Roman College. Now, the Jesuits' confirmation letter did not mention Copernicanism, but Copernicanism was just a minor point in Galileo's book. Moreover, and this is very important, astronomers in 1610 knew that even if the traditional geocentric model was now at stake because of Galileo's observations, especially the phases of Venus, there was another recently developed model that accounted for all of these observations and still kept the Earth at the center of the universe and thus preserved the standard model of Aristotelian physics. This new system was a hybrid in which all planets rotated around the Sun, but the Sun, alongside with the Moon, rotated around the Earth. And it became known as the Tychonic model in honor of Tycho Brahe, the Danish astronomer who invented it, and whose student, by the way, was a famous Johannes Kepler. So, Galileo's book you know, has all these scientific consequences, but beyond the scientific, there were also very important social consequences. In a massively strategic move, Galileo dedicated the Steri messenger to the Grand Duke of Tuscany, Casino II of the Medici. Galileo praised him and named the moons of Jupiter the Medician stars, thus associating the glory of the Medici family with Jupiter's moons. As a consequence, Galileo received a job offer in Florence right at the Medici courts as the Grand Duke's chief mathematician and natural philosopher. Now, this was an extraordinary position because Galileo did not have to do any teaching, only research, which is the dream of many scientists today. And he earned much more money than he did as a university professor. But more importantly, and this is key, Galileo was raised to the status of a natural philosopher. And thus, he was now able to speak at the same intellectual and social level of natural philosophers. And so Galileo did not waste time. He packed his stuff, he moved from Padua to Florence, and became something like a star at the Medici court. As the Grand Duke's natural philosopher, he attended intellectual debates held after dinner in Italian villas, and often won them. Most of the topics discussed were not on Copernicanism, but rather on the motion of heavy objects, hydrostatics, and other topics that interested Galileo. Galileo's success at the Medici court was such that he was even able to appoint some of his students to important university positions. In turn, however, this angered many Aristotelian natural philosophers who saw Galileo rapidly advancing his anti-Aristotelian agenda. Of course, you know, there was probably some envy behind this and other things. But by now, you should be asking, where is religion? Where is the Inquisition in all of this? And this is a good question because it has not appeared yet. That the Inquisition has not yet appeared in this case. And in fact, we know exactly when and how theology first became an issue to Galileo. So until you know, three years after the publication of his book and Galileo's new job, Galileo's scientific observations and his new social status in Medici Florence had not raised any religious problem. But his Aristotelian adversaries, especially a man named Lodovico della Colombe, enabled to beat Galileo in scientific debates decided to try another route. He and his friends, whom Galileo called the Columbisti, that is, the little pigeons, they started accusing Galileo's ideas as being against certain passages in the Bible. At first, these accusations were only circulating as rumors. 
But things started to become serious at a breakfast in Pisa with the Medici family, in which Galileo was not present. So beware of certain breakfasts. Benedetto Castelli, one of Galileo's students, who had been hired as a professor of mathematics at the University of Pisa, was invited to attend these breakfasts. And the goal was for him to entertain the Medici family by talking about Galileo's discoveries, again, at breakfast. How bizarre. Um, and um, anyway, so it also shows that the Medici court was kind of as a university environment as well, so all these ideas were discussed at court. Um, anyway, in the end of these breakfasts, uh, and by the way, Castelli tells us that you know, the, the Medici really liked his discussion about Galileo's discoveries. But in the end of the breakfast, something happened to the point that Castelli immediately went home and wrote a letter to Galileo telling him everything. Let's hear it in Castelli's own words. Quote, as soon as I had come out of the palace after the breakfast, the porter of her most serene ladyship, the Grand Duchess Mother of Cosimo, caught up with me and called me back. However, before I say what followed, you must know that at the table, Boscaglia, a professor of philosophy at the University of Pisa, had been whispering for a long time to the ear of her ladyship. He admitted as true all the celestial novelties you have discovered, but he said that the Earth's motion could not happen, especially since the Holy Scripture was clearly contrary to this claim. So the Grand Duchess called Castelli back because she wanted to know whether heliocentrism was really against the Scriptures. Castelli rapidly responded that that was not the case and showed why Copernicanism did not contradict the Bible. Castelli also said that the Grand Duke and his wife were very pleased with his answers, but that the Grand Duchess remained more skeptical but nothing to worry about. Galileo, however, thought he should worry, lest more problems should arise. Moreover, Galileo had a good relationship with the Grand Duchess, who was a very devout lady. Therefore, he wrote a letter to Castelli with an extensive explanation of this problem, stating that passages in the Bible that seems to say that the sun moves should be interpreted figuratively. Galileo later developed his arguments in what became known as the letter to the Grand Duchess. He quoted, he quoted St. Augustine and even added a famous quote, stating that the Bible serves to tell us how to go to heaven and not how the heaven goes. Galileo clearly showed himself to be a good writer of theology as well as of science. But the problem is that Galileo was not a theologian. Since Martin Luther and other Protestant reformers started providing their own interpretations of the Bible, the Catholic Church adopted a much stricter stance about who could say what about the Bible, and who was Galileo to interpret the Bible all of a sudden. Yet, this would also not have been a problem had a copy of Galileo's letter to Castelli not fallen into the hands of one of the Columbisti, who immediately sent the letter to the Roman Inquisition. So happily for Galileo, the head of the Inquisition was Cardinal Bellarmine, who knew Galileo and his research well. However, the polemics with Galileo in Florence reached such a point that Cardinal Bellarmine and the Inquisition had to make a public statement about it. They studied the case by reading all of Galileo's books. Bellarmine even met with the Pope, and they finally decided to close the process in a very soft and discreet manner. The final decision was twofold and has a formal side and an informal side to it. The formal part was a decree of the Congregation of the Index, the Church's office that forbade books that were not in line with Catholic faith and morals. None of Galileo's books were condemned. The decree only asked that Copernicus's book be partially censored 
That is, all the sentences in the book that stated that heliocentrism was real and not just a hypothesis should be censored. The informal part of the decision was a private meeting between Galileo and Cardinal Bellarmine. Bellarmine told Galileo that there was no problem with his writings, but that he should refrain from speaking about heliocentrism as a scientific fact. Bellarmine had actually very clear thoughts about heliocentrism. In a letter, he said that if there were a true demonstration that the sun is at the center of the world and the earth in the third heaven, and that the sun does not circle the earth, but the earth circles the sun, then one would have to proceed with great care in explaining the scriptures that appear contrary, and say rather that we do not understand them than that what is demonstrated is false. But I will not believe that there is such a demonstration until it is shown to me. In short, Bellarmine acknowledged that if Copernicanism was proven real, the biblical passages that raised problems to the Columbisti should be reinterpreted. But without such proof, nothing should be done. And, you know, of course, I already told you there was a novel geocentric hybrid model that explained all of Galileo's observations. In the end, Galileo was very happy about his decision. His books were not considered problematic, and the church did not declare heliocentrism a heresy. All of this happened in the year 1616, but more was to come. A few years later, Cardinal Matteo Barberini, one of Galileo's greatest admirers, was elected pope. Barberini had witnessed Galileo's scientific debates and even dedicated a poem to him. Galileo was so happy with his election that he described it to a friend as a marvelous conjuncture, as if all the stars and planets in the sky are you know, signing this great event that's going to happen. As a consequence, Galileo went to Rome and had long conversations with the Pope, and he left very encouraged to finally write his book about Copernicanism. Another important point is that Galileo also wrote to a friend that the chief censor in Rome would read his book, a priest called Father Riccardi, a Dominican, has a strong opinion that this, that is Copernicanism, is not a matter of faith, and that it, the Copernican debate, is not the appropriate place for the scriptures. Father Riccardi thought that it was impossible to know whether the earth or the sun was at the center of the rivers, an idea also shared by the Pope and that the Pope told to Galileo. So Galileo's book on heliocentrism was a very well-written dialogue between three characters, one who was in favor of Copernicus, another who was in favor of the old geocentric model, and one moderator. The book completely destroyed the arguments of Simplicius, who was the character that defended the traditional model. Tellingly, Galileo did not mention once the Taconic model, so he only considers the old traditional model, he doesn't mention the new. And as a novelty, Galileo finally wrote that he, he had found a proof he now had a proof that the heliocentric system was true. And that proof was the ocean tides. So what was Galileo's argument? Just think, you know, have of a glass of water. Imagine that this is a glass of water. You know, if you move the glass of water around in a circle, you notice that the water raises itself in the direction contrary to the center of motion. Now, if the glass or the earth also rotates around its axis while it is making this, you know, translational motion, this elevation in the water will move throughout the day, thus creating the tides. This means that there is only one high tide per day. The problem is that 
you know, every surfers in Portugal know this, there is not one high tide per day, but there are two high tides per day. Moreover, various scholars at this time, including Johannes Kepler, already knew that the tides were a result of the influence of the moon and not of the Earth's motion. Therefore, Father Riccardi, you know, he read the book, and he said that the book would be published, but Galileo had to soften some of his claims. So Galileo went back to Florence and made all the necessary changes after a very complicated approval process, which even involved an epidemic lockdown, similar to our own COVID-era lockdowns. But, you know, in the end, the book went to press. However, Galileo's way of softening his claims did not please everyone, especially the Pope. Galileo decided to close the book, so the very last line of the book, with Simplicius, the simpleton, shrugging at the heliocentric model, saying that, ultimately, God could do as he pleased, in many ways which are unthinkable to our minds. This was the idea that it was impossible to know which model was right, the very idea that the Pope had shared with Galileo before. So when the Pope read his ideas in the mouth of a character who was laughed at throughout an entire book, and the book was not short, he took it as a public joke against himself. Thus he felt publicly betrayed by his friend Galileo, and decided to react on the same terms, that is, by humiliating Galileo publicly. As a result, the Inquisition called Galileo back to appear on court on the grounds that he had taught Copernicanism after having been asked not to, and without having a proof. The trial took various days and relied on several meetings behind the scenes. A letter written in the middle of the trial, and this is in 1633, from the Inquisition's Commissary General to Francesco Barberini, a cardinal nephew of the Pope, and one of those inquisitors who did not sign the final condemnation of Galileo. This letter summarizes everything, quote, I hope His Holiness and Your Eminence will be satisfied that the case is brought to such a point that it may be settled without difficulty. The Inquisition Tribunal will maintain its reputation. The culprit can be treated with benignity. And with this done, he, that is, Galileo, could be granted imprisonment in his own house, as Your Eminence mentioned. And thus, we are back to how this talk started. Galileo was condemned to house arrest as vehemently suspected of heresy for joking with the Pope. And thus ends the Galileo affair. That's it. That's, that's how it ends. So, but what happens next? You know, Galileo doesn't die immediately. So in, in, in the final years, just to finish, the elderly Galileo still had quite a productive time at home. He finally wrote a book on the motion of heavy objects. The book's manuscript, known as the Discourses on the Two New Sciences, had to be smuggled out of Italy to the Protestant city of Leiden because no Catholic censor wanted to approve Galileo's writings, even though there was no explicit ban on his publications. Scientifically speaking, the two new sciences had a lasting impact in the history of physics. Galileo's mathematical description of uniformly accelerated motion and his identification of the motion of projectiles as a parable are still taught today in basic physics courses. Galileo also did not shrug his shoulders with regards to the church. He continued to lobby before the Pope through you know, his French networks, because the Pope had previously worked as a cardinal in France, to try to you know, change the, ver you know, the, the final decision of the, of the Inquisition. Indeed, it, it was not uncommon for these changes to happen, you know, which also speaks to how Galileo perceived this condemnation as contingent on the specific events of his times, or you know, for Galileo, perhaps, bad luck. In fact, the Galileo affair did not in any way affect Galileo's personal views 
towards religion or towards the Catholic Church. As he wrote to the French scholar Papine Perez, quote, two sources of comfort assist me perpetually. One is that in reading all my works, no one will find, by any shadow of a doubt, anything that deviates from piety and reverence for the Holy Church. The other is my own conscience, only known to me on earth and to God in heaven, who understands that in this cause for which I suffer, though many might have spoken more devoutly, no one else, not even the Holy Fathers, proceeded and spoke more piously, nor with greater zeal for the Holy Church, neither with better intention than I did. So Galileo clearly had a good opinion of himself as a Catholic. <laughs> <laughs> so in the end, no major change happened. So Galileo was not able to convince the Pope to um, revoke the Inquisition ban on heliocentrism. And, um, and that, in fact, did not happen for many decades that followed. But Galileo would probably be happy to know that since the late 19th century, the Catholic Church officially adopted, adopted his views that the Bible should be read for matters of faith and morals only, and not for science. And the most prominent case of this is Pope John Paul II's encyclical Faith and Reason, which even cites Galileo's letter to the Grand Duchess. So much more could be said about the Galileo affair. In this talk, I explain the origins of Copernicanism, Galileo's scientific interests, and the Church's involvement in both research projects. Indeed, rather than persecuting science as the New York Times and other prominent platforms still advocate, I show that the institutional Church was often the main driver for the advancement of science. We saw various examples of this. Copernicus wrote his book due to the encouragement of bishops and cardinals. The new liturgical calendar depended on new astronomy. The Jesuits confirmed Galileo's observations, and so on. At the same time, however, there was also people within the church, including the Pope and Inquisition officials, who also strongly resisted Galileo and his ideas. In short, history is much more complex than the simplistic idea of a battle between religion and science. But I also argue that an accurate understanding of the Galileo affair also gives us way more than just a good grasp of the past. Instead, it deeply affects our perception of how modern science came to be, and perhaps our own opinions on science and religion. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Hasselblank. That was a very illuminating uh, talk, I must say. Um, we have some time for questions and answers, if anyone has anything to bring up. Wonderful. Yeah, um, I don't know um, if, I, if I heard you right or if the problem has been addressed according to the concept, which is Plato was the first to discover the geocentric theory. Julius Caesar was the next who came up with the 365.4 day year. Mm -hmm. And all that time, it came to Copernicus to say that the model that we were using was wrong. But in 1582, 30 years before any of this happened, the calendar was changed because there was an error. And that is with a 365 and a quarter day year. So the whole problem was, if you say the Earth moves, you have to prove what is the force? What is the scientific force that makes it move? Or what is the religious force that makes it move? And Galileo 
came up 30 years later that the tides did it. No person with the right mind would accept that. So he had to be discarded, put in prison to make sure he wouldn't utter another syllable to be told anybody that theory. But nobody else knew why it had changed. And to this day, nobody has ever told me why it has changed. And if you can give me the scientific name of the motion of the earth, or if you can give me the religious belief of what the motion of the earth is, then that might be one of the three reasons why we have a 365 and a quarter day year that doesn't work. Now, do you have the terminology? Or am I going to be sitting here for another 50 years waiting for it? So this is, a, this is a very complicated question that affects many people. Let me just say that the problem with the calendar was, you know, people were unaware of it for centuries, throughout the entire Middle Ages. You know, you know, the churchmen who were in charge of this and the astronomers knew that the Julian calendar that he mentioned was, of course, um, problematic. And the church only, you know, started with a major reform of it at, in the times of Copernicus. And then in 1582, as you mentioned, when the reform actually happened, was just the conclusion of a very long and complicated process. And of course, this reform of the calendar has many other social problems, which is very interesting because they have to move the day, you know, they have to move forward 10 days to make the calendar right. So I think it was around um, October 5th, you know, the next day you woke up and it's October 15th, right? And so this is, um, for this reason, people say that uh, St. Teresa of Avila would die precisely that he was in pain for 10 nights. You know, it's a very, um, Fun thing to remember, but um, anyway, it's, it's a very it was it, not everyone accepted, of course, the, the Gregorian calendar when the church moved it on. The Catholic countries did, and until very later, you know, the dates in England were ten years before um, they were in um, in Rome, for instance. So I mean, it was it was a very complicated process in itself, and um, but it's still the one that we use today. They're, you know, it's, and it's been working. And without the scientific term. Without the scientific term for the knowledge of what the motion of the Earth is, are we still using it today? Why? I mean, because we don't. You don't actually need to explain why the Earth moves or how. So you don't need scientific explanation for the motion of the Earth. That's the key thing about the Galileo affair. Astronomy was not really interested in doing science. You know, for Aristotle, science was understanding the four causes of things. The causes. Of yeah, things. but even science is interested in doing science, but they don't have an aim for it. Well, now we do. You know, we use gravity and other things. <coughs> yes. So really, really wonderful lecture, and the Jesuits got a lot of praise there. Uh, so I got to just point out that when it comes to the moon, um, Albert the Great, uh, a good Dominican, without even needing a telescope, figured out that there were mountains on the moon. But anyway, put that down. <laughs> <laughs> my question, my question with it, this great Dante scholar sitting here in front of me, it's about the question of the popular imagination of um, of the universe, um, and with the geocentric model in poetry like Dante and in all kinds of literature and all kinds of other sources beyond the specialized work of theologians and, and scientists. It's there in the popular imagination. And I'm just wondering if this debate actually, if there were any popular repercussions, if people knew it was going on, if there were any popular reactions for or against, or if it was something that remained just in these salons in, in, in Rome and elsewhere. Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, I think one of your Dominican friends in Rome asked me that question, and so I'll be speaking about that um, in May. Um, but I still have to read a lot until then. But um, so let me say that Galileo himself, of course, as a good Italian, was um, a big fan of Dante, 
and he, he you know, was when he was in Pisa, and in Padua, he was he even developed a full mathematical model for Dante's Inferno. Um, so it's a very interesting, um, you know, point to do. I mean, the the whole debate between the geocentric and the heliocentric model will take many, many decades to be solved. I would, I would argue that it's only you know when Isaac Newton comes and provides a, you know a sophisticated mathematical explanation for. Gravity, which itself also has some you know, conceptual problems, what is Newton talking about, what is gravity and all these things, which then Einstein comes, but again, has more problems. But, um, but it's working, right? So this is science that is working, and that's, and that's the thing. And so I'd say that after Newton, um, the heliocentric model was widely accepted, even though there was no scientific observation yet. The main scientific observations for Copernicanism only come in 1838 with Friedrich Bessel when he observes stellar parallax. It's a complicated thing to check and explain. Yes, I'm just curious about that. Was it until was it a, uh, was the Tychonic model accepted as a possibility until Newton, or was it discredited some point or discarded some point between Tycho Brahe and then uh, Newton? Yeah, great, great question. So I mean, Kepler, who uh, was Tycho Brahe's student. Um, you know, he very quickly realized that the Tycho Brahe model was not good because Kepler, Kepler was a great mathematician and he was like one of these people who did calculations very fast, like his, you know, living computers, right? And so he realized there was a problem with the orbits of Mars that did not really match. These very detailed calculations that almost no one understood um, did not really match the Tycho Brahe model. And so he realized that it was a heliocentric model and not just that, that it was not uniform circles, as Copernicus said, it was actually ellipses to the shock of Kepler himself. This was shocking for a variety of reasons. Plato was mentioned, and Plato had said, perfect motions, like those of the stars, are you know uniform circular motions. And all of a sudden, you have planets moving in ellipses. This is crazy. But Kepler said, hey, this is what the calculations give, so that's it. And then Newton explains it with his gravity theory. Um, I should say, however, that the Jesuits did get a lot of praise here. And the Jesuits became the main promoters of the Tycho Brahe model. So the Jesuits um, become very angry at Galileo in the middle. Of course, there's many details about the fact that I did not um, say. And in fact, let me just turn on my slide just to recommend two books. There are many books about Galileo that are great. Um, these two specifically, I like very much. You know, Galileo goes to jail and other myths about science and religion, published by Harvard University Press. So it's not just about Galileo, it's about science and religion in general. And then the Oxford University Press, very short introduction to Galileo, very tiny, so it's good. Um, but anyway, the Jesuits um, become angry at Galileo because they feel that Galileo has, you know, was too cocky and so kind of created a problem that need not exist. And now because of Galileo, no one can talk freely about Copernicanism. And so they adhere strongly to the Ticonic model. However, I should also say that some Jesuits, especially a man called Giambattista Riccioli, was really in favor of the Ticonic model. And he tried to show that you know, the Copernicanism model did not work, for instance. He realized that if the Earth was really rotating, then there, 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 there should be some kind of a drag on motion like cannonballs. So he was making um, experiments with cannonballs, shooting cannonballs really far, and see if the rotation of the Earth would affect them. And of course, he did not. And so he realized that you know, <coughs> the Earth is not rotating. Of course, now we know that this effect actually exists. It exists, and it's called the Coriolis effect. Of course, it doesn't affect cannonballs. It affects the atmosphere. But, um, but uh, so this is a kind of a prophetic scientific insight. But, um, so, I mean, there were people who were using the Teutonic model just to be able to speak about astronomy. And there were people who really believed in it and argued for it, even after Newton. 
And I should say, however, that you know, even the Jesuits and you know, the Dominicans and the Oratorians and you know, the Catholic world taught Copernicanism, but as a fake model. But it was always taught, and people were familiar with it. Um, so yes. I thank you very much for a very engaging talk. I mean, I, I'd never been presented, never been presented to me in that way that Galileo was kind of, as a mathematician, pushing against the Aristotelian natural scientists. Uh, and so I thought it might have been a bigger point, but maybe you couldn't go into detail, that he saw craters on the moon. Because it would have been a big issue for the Aristotelian model that the matter that is above the lunar realm, I imagine inclusive of the moon, doesn't change. It's made of the quintessence. So it's a different kind of matter. It's a different act potency uh, combination. So was that was that a kind of sticking point that he that he brought up against the natural uh, scientists? That become a big thing? Did he make a big thing of it? Yes, great, great point. That's uh, that's crucial actually. So of course I could not mention everything in, in, in this uh, short talk, but the moon becomes one of his arguments also to argue against the Aristotelian model because you know, just you know what, what he was saying was that you know everything above the moon was perfect, right? Everybody looked at the skies and so there was no change. Everything was the same every year. Since the Babylonians, we have data, astronomical data from ancient Babylon. And so we know that nothing changes above the moon. The moon doesn't change, it's always the same. And the stars and the planets and the sun. Here things on Earth, you know, things change. Like, you know, we die, you know, there's always change. Above the moon, there's not. That's why also, for instance, um, you know, images of the Blessed Virgin Mary in Catholic arts have her above the moon because she's immaculate conceived, right? So she's like, she doesn't change, she doesn't have corruption, as Aristotle would call it. So it's an interesting thing to understand some um, art history. But, um, so Galileo definitely argues, hey, look, now there's mountains in the moon. The moon is actually like the Earth. And this is an interesting point. In that letter, the Jesuits' letter confirming the observations, they also you know, comment on some of Galileo's interpretations. And Christopher Clavis, who was the main Jesuit astronomer, the head of the reform of the calendar, um, even commented, yeah, I don't think that these are mountains in the moon. And in fact, I mean, you don't need a telescope, as um, Father was saying. You can, of course, look at the moon and see that there's shades there, right? But it's always the same, sh the same shades. And so you cannot, and you cannot really determine whether there's, you know, moons or not. Galileo was able to determine that only with the telescope, because he saw that there were some dots in the shadowy areas, which were, of course, you know, the peaks of mountains, the sun still hitting the peaks of mountains. Um, but uh, Christopher Clavis, for instance, said, oh, I'm not sure about this. But all the Jesuits who signed the letter, it's very interesting because the letter says, shows also the freedom of thought among the Jesuits. You know, Clavis thinks it's not mountains, but some others don't agree and think it's probably mountains. And that's it. Um, but yeah, that was a huge, another huge point that led to the collapse of these two systems. Yes. Um, you mentioned that in Galileo's dialogue, uh, the geocentrist character is called Simplicius. Yes. It's not a very flattering name. Um, does the Copernican character have a more flattering name? And how rude overall is the book? And to what extent was Galileo unnecessarily cheeky? So that's a you know great great question about the names. There's you know this, the name Simplicius is actually more profound than um, I may sound like. Of course, Simplicius means simpleton, but Simplicius is also the name of the first big commentator on Aristotelian physics. So people were aware of this, okay? The name of the heliocentric guy, uh, the Copernican, was Salviati, who was one of, who was named after Francesco Salviati, one of the main 
hosts of Gabriel with the Italian Bulls. Um, and then the moderator was this man named Sagredo, who was a friend from Gabriel from Venice. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, it's. Yeah, so there's this thing, the names, the, the, this dialogue, by the way, is really well written, so you really can't, that's not one of the reasons why the Pope doesn't like it, because it really feels, you know, tacked in many ways, um, because English doesn't come out well. Um, but you might wonder whether, you know, should Galileo have included that in the end? So the thing is that the, the original manuscript of Galileo's dialogue um, did not have that passage. So this is because of the reviews that he was asked to do. And... Um, you know, one of the reviews that were asked is that you have to say that we cannot know which model is right in the end. And so he's like, you know, I already published this book and he has that in the end. Now, the censors should have read this also and approved these revisions. But again, because I mentioned there was a lockdown, and so the book could not be shipped back to Rome, Galileo decides to publish the book in Florence and so sends it to the censorship office in Florence. And the Florentine censors say, hey, Galileo is one of our best scientists. The book even already has an early approval from Rome. Galileo did the thing, so yeah, let's publish it. So one may even wonder I mean, if, if, if there were no, you know, no epidemic at that time, maybe you know things would not have happened because Father Riccardi would have read this and no, this is this is too harsh. You know, I have to put it more softly, whatever. Um, and Galileo, in fact, you know, in the whole Inquisition trial in 1633, you know, puts himself available to write like a final chapter on the book in which he kind of shows, softens the things, all that, but the Inquisition doesn't allow it. It's just a fact. Thank you. You mentioned a little earlier about the surprise that the orbit was not circular, but elliptical. But the scholars who studied the anticlithera mechanism, which was made around 300 years before, AD, they discovered in that mechanism that they provided for the, the, the movement of the moon, which was a technique that no clockmaker existed in the world had that device. And that really, really surprised them. So 300 years before Christ, the elliptical orbit, the elliptical Orbit of the moon was known to the Greeks. Yeah. So, but that's that, that instrument that was discovered, does it include an elliptical orbit to the moon, or is it just a sophisticated model to? Well, the, the, the mechanism uh, was, was a clockwork mechanism, right? And it was able to predict the movements of the planets and take into account the orbit of the moon by a very clever. Device. Yes, but is it elliptical? Do you actually are you, are you sure it's elliptical? Well, the device is not elliptical, but it, right. it mm -hmm. creates. Uh -huh. I mean, it's, it's, it, so it's possible that it would have happened. I mean, in the ancient world, there are many ideas, and in fact, I mentioned that Copernicus was the first modern man to advance heliocentrism because there was another ancient man to speak about heliocentric heliocentrism was Hipparchus. And Copernicus himself mentions him and says we're recovering ancient knowledge, you know, knowledge more ancient than Ptolemy. Um, so I mean, it's possible that that model for the moon would be elliptical. Let me just say, however, that um, the motion of the moon is one of the most complicated, you know, problems in, in you know physical astronomy because it's a three-body problem, right? So 
the moon is not sufficiently away from the sun or the earth that we can exclude the sun uprightly. And in physics, that's a very complicated equation to solve. You have to settle some variables, otherwise you could not solve it. So it's, it was one of the most difficult things to determine was the position of the moon. Much more difficult than, for instance, the sun or Mars or, or other things. Yes, thank you. It appears that in those early years, uh, knowledge in one part of the world didn't immediately transfer to other parts of the world. So different scholars have different levels of knowledge mm -hmm. and levels of ignorance about what someone else was doing. So what? Sorry, what's the question? Like different scholars who lived in different parts of the world wouldn't know what someone else was doing. In the ancient world, you Like, mean. so, for instance, there could be some scholars who didn't know about the elliptical orbit and others. Exactly. No, absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, and I think the discovery of that, of that device that you mentioned was groundbreaking when it appeared. It was very recent. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the question of the translation of knowledge and the move of knowledge, the transfer of knowledge between civilizations even, is one of the most interesting questions in the history of science. And of course, you know, how the knowledge of ancient Greece comes to you know, Western Europe is, of course, through you know, the Islamic world. So it's a, a very interesting um, very interesting problem in the history of science. Thank you. Thank you. So a final question. Uh, yeah, so you say that Galileo was uh, friends with uh, the Pope, uh, Barberini, mm -hmm. um, and that they had a good relationship. Mm -hmm. And you also say that uh, in the dialogue, uh, he, he puts on a quote that the Pope said to him, mm -hmm. and that's what he finds offensive. Uh, couldn't this problem have been solved privately instead of, you know, this huge thing? Yes, the problem is that Galileo was already very famous at this time, and the book was going, was going to circulate um, you know, widely across Europe. And there's also another thing that I didn't mention, but it's in most Galileo's biographies, which is the fact that the Thirty Years' War was going on. It was a tremendous war that's, you know, the so-called war that devastated Europe. Um, and, and of course, it's usually portrayed as a war between, you know, Catholic countries and Protestant countries. But again, history is way more complex. And then you have Catholic France fighting in favor of, you know, the Protestants, you know, with Sweden and all that. And the Pope, who had been working with the French and was friends with France, was under immense pressure from, you know, the Philips from Spain, Catholic Spain, saying, look, look at the French, you're not even helping. So there's lots of pressure going on. So there's a legend even that says that the Pope Barberini was like such a, you know, emotional man um, in a bad way that he had all the birds in the Vatican Garden the Vatican Gardens killed because they were denying him so much. Um, and one thing that happens is that, um, you know, the first time Galileo goes there, when the Pope, when he's elected Pope, they have long conversations. But when Galileo goes back with the book and completes it, submitted to the censorship check, the Pope almost has no time to meet with him. So, you know, the situation was very different also. So that also may have led the Pope to react more aggressively because now he has this famous guy kind of joking at him. We were even friends, right? Yeah, but good points, yeah. Thank you once again.